Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Joel, When Disaster Comes. Find a Bible and find the place called Joel in the Bible. We're moving on through the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, minor supposedly called, minor prophets nonetheless. Uh, not that, but... Um, Making our way, finished or not finished, because we're not—we're doing the highlights, right, of the Old Testament, and so we finished some of the stuff in Hosea. I would recommend the rest of Hosea to you. We're now in the book of Joel, Joel chapter one. We're going to be looking at the first chapter and part of the second chapter uh, this morning. Joel is an interesting book for a number of reasons. There's 12 different men in the Old Testament named Joel, and uh, he's one of them. Uh, the only thing about Joel is that we don't know we just don't know much about him. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot to say about him as compared to maybe a Hosea or a Daniel or an Isaiah, who we get to see a lot of their lives, especially Hosea, his personal life, very personal life, and we just don't know much about this book, uh, in, about the person who wrote this book, I should say. Uh, he's the son. It's, it says there of maybe maybe uh, also need to say just by way of education because I had to go through two years of Hebrew study when I was in seminary, so somebody's going to pay for it. There is no such thing as a Joel. There is no J in the Hebrew language. So take the J out of the Bible. Really, Old or New Testament, the J doesn't exist. There is no, there is no word, I was about to say no, no Jesus. No, there definitely is, praise God, a Jesus. There is no word Jesus because the name, there was no J in their language. There's no Jehovah. It started all these, every time you see a J, replace it with a Y. Every time you see an I, replace it with a Y. Like Isaiah starts with the same letter as Joel does, as Jesus does, and as Jehovah does, even though we pronounce them differently. Jeremiah starts with the same. And so they were not pronounced the way you say. And that's for all you Jehovah's Witness out there who claim that Jehovah is the name of God. Well, it most definitely isn't, because that's not the way you pronounce it. It just simply isn't there. You can't make the grammar do what the grammar doesn't do. There is no J sound in the entire Hebrew language. Sometimes it's an H most cases, it's in a Y. In the case of Joel, his name is pronounced Yoel. It's a great name, though, nonetheless. The name means that Jehovah or Yehovah is God. Uh, great name and a highly recommended name, nonetheless, uh, uh, important name in that sense. He's the son of Pethuel, it says there in the first verse. We don't know who that is either. So we don't know who his daddy is. We don't know who he is. And the reason why we don't know those things is because God has not seen fit to communicate that to us. And you know what? That's his prerogative. We know something about Daniel. We know something about Hosea because that was necessary. In fact, it was part of their message. It's part of the meaning and the story of those books. But it's not the part of the meaning and the story of the book of Joel because it's only the, not the messenger as much as it is the message in this case. We do know that most scholars agree, both Hebrew scholars and Christian scholars, that Joel was one of the first prophets to write. So again, illustrating again my problem I have with these minor prophets and major and minor prophets. They're not in chronological order. So he's one of the first prophets to write, and yet here he is, the fifth or sixth one down the list as we go through the Old Testament. Yep. But he writes before Isaiah does, before Jeremiah does, before Ezekiel does, before Daniel does. He writes ahead of these guys. And so I kind of like the chronology. Maybe you would like to join me this year. I'm going to be reading the book, the, the book of the Bible, the whole Bible, uh, in chronological order. I've never actually done it. I've run portions of the Bible, but I'm going to do Old and New Testament just because I think there is a flavor there that we're missing without seeing it in chronological order. So again, the focus is not on the prophet himself, but in more, more, more on what he says, not, not say anything less of the other books that we've been reading, but it certainly is in this case. The focus is on a disaster. Disaster of that day, 
that happened. Joel saw it, as did, as we're going to see here, as did his elders. He called them to take a look at it. And, uh, but it's there to speak to us of a disaster, as we're going to see the majority of the book of Joel is concerned with a disaster that is even yet to come. And that disaster is the same disaster we read about in the book of Daniel. We spent a lot of time looking at the end times, in particular uh, the seven-year period that we call the tribulation, the very end, and in, in particular a whole chapter here in the book of Joel. There's only three of them that is concerned with nothing except for the battle, as we call it uh, supposedly, of the battle of Armageddon. So it is, it is a great book for that. It is, by the way, that is the tenet of most of the Old Testament minor, as they call them, prophets, uh, because it is such an important thing on God's list. And so we are going to be going over those things. You say, well, we just went over in the book of Daniel, and I would say, too bad, because I didn't write the Bible, and so here we go, you know. I don't get to pick and choose, and so I guess you can pick and choose. You don't have to come or whatever, but this is what we're going to do. So here we go again. Nonetheless, disaster, and, and that is, it is a severe one. And so at this point is where you say, Pastor Bill, how severe was it? So you're going to say, Pastor Bill, I'm glad you asked. Uh, thanks for asking, because that's going to allow me to continue with another hour and a half of preaching that I was planning to do. You mean we couldn't have, could have broke from that? Yeah. Now we're trying not to make it as visible as it is. Let's take a look, though. Beginning in, verse, beginning in verse 1, there the word of God, the word of the Lord came to Yoel, right? The son of Pethuel. We know nothing about those dudes at all other than what Joel wrote. Hear this, elders. Listen, O inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? So he calls them to take a look. Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. So grandfathers to their children and grandchildren. What the gnawing here is, if you look down at verse 6, it says a nation is invaded. But what kind of nation? He back back up to verse 4. The gnawing locusts. So it's bugs. So what's the big deal about bugs? Well, anybody got roaches in their house? Yeah, you do. You think you don't. You live in South Texas, you got them. It's just a matter of how many. Anybody got termites? You do. It's just a matter of how many. Silverfish, fleas, spiders, eating all that. You've got bugs. We live with bugs. So, why, so psh, no big deal. Bugs are common, right? Well, not like this. Look at what he says. The gnawing locusts, what the gnawing locusts have left, as if that was much, the swarming locusts have eaten, and what the swarming locusts have left, the creeping locusts have eaten, and what the creeping locusts, are four levels of locusts here. We're going to talk about that in a second. Have left the stripping locusts of Eden. Awake drunkards. Weep, wail for your wine, the drinkers. So the, the, on the account of the sweet wine has been cut off. They've eaten everything. There's not going to be a grape harvest this year. You're not going to be making wine of any kind. Your nation has been invaded. A nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. And you might want to underline that because you can be sure, as we're going to see, these, you can't number these guys. As it has teeth, the teeth of a lion, and has fangs, a lion of a lioness. It connects us to a part in Revelation, which is going to be something we're going to refer to later, not today. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters and has stripped them bare and cast them away and the branches have become white. Wail, it says, like a virgin girded with sackcloth who lost her, her fiancé, it goes on to say there. So, so we have this incredible invasion of bugs. And so I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but I know it's happened. To, happened in other, if, if you have a house, by the way, that's in your neighborhood that's not doing too well, it's been abandoned or whatever, and they tear it down, may I suggest to you to call the bug man for your house? Because of the, the stuff that was living there is coming to find a new house. And they will. And you will know it. I mean, it will hit like a wave. 
but nothing like the wave that hits here in the days of Joel, in the days of Israel, compared to these things. There is a writer who writes in 1915 in the National Geographic, guy by the name of John D. Whiting. He personally saw a plague of locusts in the Middle East, in Palestine in particular. He was traveling in the Promised Land, Palestine area. And I don't know if you know what locusts are, but I grew up in East Texas, and what we call locusts are not locusts. We call locusts the stuff that are in the trees making these beautiful noises at night. And you go to bed with the locusts, supposedly. Those are not locusts. Those are something altogether different. A locust is a grasshopper, about two and a half or three inches long, usually green or yellow, and they fly. And they can fly, by the way, not just a short distance. Anybody grew up in West Texas or any place that it gets dry and wet at the same sometimes of the year, you're going to find, find them here. They're good, good fishing bait. By the way, they are kosher if you're Jewish and care to eat something that's kosher. They are kosher. You can eat them. Those of you that are going to Israel with us, get to eat. We're going to have a whole meal of nothing but grasshoppers. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but wouldn't you love to have it? They do eat them there. They really do. Believe it or not. They are kosher. Uh, you've seen them before. The ones you see in West Texas, South Texas, other places, those are the same locusts that live in the Middle East. They're not different. The difference is, is how they come. Because we live in a world where obviously it rains at any old given time or not, there's, there is not a feast and famine type of relationship. In fact, we have more famine here maybe than feast. In the Middle East, in particular Israel, they have an absolute feast and famine situation. Six months out of the year, they have days like this. Six months out of the year, not a drop falls from the sky. Every year. By the way, if you're a farmer, what a great, I mean, incredible way to implant because you know when the rain's coming and you know when the dry's coming and they're able to make incredible harvests based upon those things. The problem about it is, is that, that bugs in particular like grasshoppers, otherwise called locusts, can, can have an abs- they can have a bumper crop of them at the same time because, you, because this feast and famine, feast and famine, feast and famine. So if the bugs breed at the right time, the plants are growing at the right time, then they can turn into this swarm that is truly biblical in dimensions. I'm going to read you part of the de- description that this guy, that John D. Whiting, describes as he sees there in 1915 the disaster that happened. He, by the way, he describes a swarm that covered everything from the Taurus Mountains, which is the middle part of Syria, southern, Palestine, southern uh, Lebanon, all of Palestine, all the way to the border of Egypt. Now, that's a lot of property. That's like five times the size of the Rio Grande Valley, covered with one swarm. And what do I mean by a swarm? Here he describes it this way. He says they came originally in March, and they came, they were all adults, and they were all winged, and they would all fly. And in some cases, when they would come up all together, they would blacken the sky like a cloud. You saw a cloud coming. It wasn't a cloud. It was bugs. Of course, they land on your crops and other things. The bad, the, the bad news is, is if you've got plants in the ground in March, they eat all of them. The good news is if you haven't planted till the middle of March, you miss the bugs. Perfect. No problem. The problem was, though, is that these bugs were all adults, and as they went, they were laying eggs. And he said what he found was is that these two-and-a-half to three-inch-long females were digging holes about six inches deep, and they were filling the tops of the eggs. The average was 100 eggs per hole. And here's what he found also. There were holes all over the land, top to bottom, hundreds of miles, hundreds of acres covered with these holes, and he said between, he estimated between 65,000 and 75,000 eggs were concentrated per square meter. So, so they fly in, they eat stuff. If your plants are in the ground, you're in trouble. If they're not in the ground, you plant later. March is not too late to plant. 
So we'll wait till the end of March. The bugs move out. They, they all die off. They only got like a three, three week lifespan. They all die off, but they planted all these eggs everywhere. Two weeks later, hatch. And they don't hatch like the adults. They hatch not a lot bigger than these red ants you see here in South Texas. About that size. They just crawl. They can't hop. They can't fly. But whatever they can crawl and get a hold of, they devour. So everything from knee down basically ruined. And they're everywhere. It's not like they're coming from somewhere. They're coming from the ground. And so they're, it's not like watch out because they're coming from Mark's house. They're coming to my house. No, they're coming everywhere. They're, they're coming from my ground. They're coming from your ground. They're everybody's ground. And as they eat, they grow. And because they have an exoskeleton, if you remember your biology, they swell. And because they can't, they can't grow any bigger, they molt. And when they molt, they grow wings. He says the molt after their original ant size got them about an inch long. They had wings, but they couldn't fly, but they were bright yellow. And the ground, he says, was completely yellow. He says, and they could hop. So now it's not knee high, it's head high. They, everything. And if they could climb up on it, they would also devour it. But he says that, that's the stuff that got ruined. He says then their molt again in May changed them into the adults that they had been, that the, laid them beforehand. And everything that was reachable, and these guys, by the way, these guys can fly as high as the stratosphere, so there's nothing out of their reach, was devoured, he said, completely. The landscape was literally changed. Hey, I'm going to read you some of his actual words. He says, once entering a vineyard, these started with the crawlers, and then it went to the jumpers, and then it went to the flyers. The sprawling vines, it says, would in the shortest time be nothing but bare bark. And then when the Danier marshals were gone, the bark was eaten off the young topmost branches, which after being exposed, it said we're bleach white, just like it says here in, in uh, Joel. It says, then seemingly out of malice, they would gnaw off the small limbs and perhaps get at the pith. Uh, and then it says they would go to the plants that nothing else would eat, that not even their predecessors, the adults, had eaten before because they were out of everything. They would literally strip the bark off of everything, and they would go to plants, for instance, like olive trees. I'm not sure if anybody like olives. You like olives? You like olives that you get from H-E-B, right? So when you travel with this to Israel, something you don't do is don't eat grasshoppers, and you don't eat the stuff that I would suggest you to eat either because I'm going to try to get you to eat olives on a tree. And only because I did that. And because it was so bad, I want to see someone else do it as well. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Olives, I found out, you don't eat them until they've soaked in salt water for weeks. And in fact, you don't even touch them because the olive hanging on a tree looks like this. I mean, it's the size of your thumb, gorgeous olive hanging on a tree, dark purple, even blacks. Got to be good, right? Take a bite. You will never forget it. It's the, it's the worst tasting thing. It's the bitterest thing. You will not be able to get the taste out of your mouth. I mean, you'll be willing to lick the dirt to get the taste out of your mouth. It is horrible. He said, when these things finished with everything else, they began to eat the olives and even the leaves. A very bitter tree stripped all the bark, ate all the small twigs off of it. And then when they finished with the olive trees, he said they went to the palm trees. Now, nothing eats a palm, right? We live in a palm tree world down here. And over there, they have, a palm, they have orchards of palms. They grow, they grow dates. These dates are gigantic, and they're incredible. They're amazing, amazing flavored. And they're an important crop today in Israel. They're an important crop back then. He says these things would not just eat the dates, not just eat the leaves, on, but they would tunnel down into the heart of the palm. 
They would literally start eating from the top, and they would eat it until the fronds fell off of it. So they devastated everything. So guess what happens? This year, no olives, not to mention no wine, no, 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 uh, no fruit, no palm trees, nothing green, and they would last for, that would last for four or five months, devastate everything. So at June, if you could plant anything in June, which not much grows, it's too hot, just like here. If you could plant and grow something, that was all that you had left. And otherwise, you had plenty of grasshoppers to eat, which, like I said, which were coaster. So, so when I say, or when he says it was bad, do you understand a little bit better? How, you've never seen anything like this. They have. They see it over there because, like I said, the conditions are right for it. Today, by the way, they control them. Guess how? Crop dusters. A crop duster. You, you get a big swarm, you crop dust them. You know? I would think you'd, they'd be able to take down a plane, the way he explains them. But nonetheless, they dust them. Back then, they didn't have it. So, so what he does here is he calls in the professionals. Notice in verse 2. Hear this, O elders. Listen, all inhabitants of the land. So he calls in the elders because he got the old guys in there say, listen, have you seen anything like this? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. They're saying, no, we absolutely haven't. So he says, listen, I need you to tell this to your kids and make sure they communicate it to your grandkids and to the next generation because what we're seeing here is an illustration, effectively what the whole book is about, a physical illustration of something that's going to happen, not locally, but globally. And it won't be bugs. It's going to be an infestation, if you will, of evil and wickedness and demons and all this stuff, and the rest of the book of Job is concerned with that time period that we know of as the seven-year tribulation, in particular the battle of Armageddon and the devastation that's going to come and the death that's going to come as a result of it. It won't be plants. It will be people who are suffering. That's the book of Joel, if you will, in a nutshell. So between now and then, even though we, biblical proportions of disaster happening and yet to become uh, future, what do we do about this book? Well, what can we glean from it? Well, here's some things I think we can. Between now and then... Here's a question. How do we handle our localized? This is a speaking of a global disaster. How do we handle our personal disaster? Anybody got a personal disaster going on? Yeah, we all do. Different, different levels, different stuff. And maybe our personal disaster is not what's going on in our life, but someone who we deeply love and they're going through horrible stuff. And it's the same as us. It's sometimes worse, whether it would happen to me, right, than to them, than my child, my, my mom, my, 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 my wife, my, my husband. So we all know what disaster is. And so I think we have here, I believe I would submit to you, we have here, God gives us through Joel a pattern to hold to when disaster comes in your life. I want us to consider four things here together. The things that he tells these people to do in the midst of disaster are the same things I believe God is speaking to us to do in our own personal or, or, or collective disasters as a congregation or as a people or as families. First thing he tells them to do is mourn. Look at what it says in verse 8. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. And apparently he's passed away. That's tough, right? We're headed to a marriage we're on our date of, date of getting married, and he's killed in battle. Something happens to him. I don't know. How would a person like that cry? He says, do that. Do that. Wow, that's interesting. I thought God wanted us to be happy all the time. Well, if everything was happy, then we could be. But it's not. And so when it's not, don't fake it. Be what it is. Verse 13, take a look. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. Lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers. You've got the leaders going on here. 
Come spend the night in sackcloth, the ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the libations are withheld from the house of our God. It's terrible. And when it's terrible, what does he say? Mourn. Nothing wrong with it. Listen, we live in a world, that, and, and we, we as Christians live in a world, we, we think we do, in which there's no need to mourn. Right? God's Son, Jesus, has come to save us, and he's resurrected. And I would totally agree in that sense. There is nothing to cry about. Jesus is the Savior, and if you trusted him, he saved you. And so your present and your eternity are taken care of. He's, he's, he's the shepherd. The, the wandering sheep has now been found by the shepherd, and the shepherd's going to care for you, and he's going to care for you in this life. He's going to care for you in the life that is to come, and the walk that's in between all that. He's going to care for you. So rejoice in that. Absolutely. But this is not heaven. Take a look. And if this is, like I said, I am mad. This is not heaven. We live in a world that doesn't have what we have. There has to be a portion of your life that mourns from daylight to dusk. There has to be. You mean you can look at the world around you and say, everything's cool? No. No, you are spiritually not sober if you can do that. There has to be something about you that's sickened by it. There has to be something that cries. And if not, then really you're not seeing things the way it ought to be seen. You're not with it. Mourn, he says. Mourn, because there is a disaster. Listen, the, the earth mourns. Did you know that? Look at what that says. We know that the whole creation, by the way, he says that as if we do know. Did you know? We know, Paul says. And I keep waiting for us to catch up to that. We know. He says a lot of those things. I keep waiting for us to, myself to catch up to what he, he knew. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until the present time. That is, from the beginning until now. So the whole creation mourns, groans, and we do not. Something's not right with that. Something's not correct with that. Jesus, when he goes to the funeral, remember of Lazarus four days late? Remember the story? He goes there four days late because he's going to resurrect him. Isn't that right? He goes and sees Mary and Martha, and both of them accuse Jesus of killing his brother, their brother, because they say, had you, not, had you been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Now, I don't know if that's a backhanded, you did this to us kind of thing or not. And I don't know if any of you have ever blamed God for anything, but there's nothing new about that. Nothing new about that. So they blame Jesus for it. And so it says the shortest verse in the whole Bible, young people, is what? Jesus wept. Don't you love that verse? Because then you can go to Awana's or to your, to your youth leader and say, I learned a verse this week. Jesus wept. That's one of the first verses I learned just to get away with stuff. But we pass over the deep meaning of that verse. It's one of the deepest, one of the narrowest verses, and I would suggest to you, very deep. Because we don't ask the question, why? So why does he weep? Oh, because he was at a funeral? Because, because Lazarus was dead? So he's going to resurrect him. I'm thinking that's not why he's crying. I, I'm going there, and to me, I, if it had been me, and thank goodness I'm not Jesus, I'd have gone there and said, buddy, I'd have been with a big smile, a smirk on my face. Yeah, y'all see y'all crying, but just wait till you see what happens today. That wasn't Jesus. It says he was deeply moved in spirit at one place. Another place it says he wept. Why? He knew what he was going to do. Well, he was moved on behalf of those who were crying there, and I think that's probably true. I think Jesus definitely is. I think God definitely feels our pain. I think he does. I really do. I think the Bible holds that out very clearly. But I would suggest to you that's not the reason why, ultimately why he's crying. The reason why he's crying is because what, the whole thing is not the way he created things to be. I believe in heaven there is a part, a portion of God's existence in which he weeps because this is not what he wants. 
It's not what he wants for your life, not what he wants for my life, not what he wants for the world. How, how many people are dropping off the face of the planet, dying every day apart from Christ? You think God's having a glory day in heaven over that stuff? He's not. Not wishing that any should perish, right? It's not a part of his plan to just throw the whole world off into hell, even though they're marching that way. He weeps over that. He cries over that. So, so the world, the, the planet is crying and our Savior is crying, but the church, now we're supposed to be happy every day because we listen to the television evangelists that tell us we're supposed to be happy every day. And something's not right with that. Something not right with our thinking. Because again, you have this like this in Matthew chapter 4, chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So you're avoiding mourning. So I guess you're not, at least that part of the blessing is not coming for you. Blessed are those who mourn. Sober-minded, they understand the world. They understand what sin is and what evil is. And guys, it's not something to be happy over. There has to be a level at which I'm always, you are always mourning. There has to be. And by the way, there is a blessing within mourning for sure. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, it says. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So are there levels above that? Levels of unbrokenness and uncontriteness that he does despise? I think we can read that in there, can't we? So if I'm really at a place where, where, where I want to I see God, I mean, if I said, okay, I'm going to line up over here, everybody that wants to experience God in a very special way, and you would all get in that line, right? But I told you when you got in that line uh, that what's going to happen is, is that you're going to become broken and contrite. Oh, well, we don't want to be a part of that. We just want to be a part of the blessing in which we see God. So there's that line over there in which you're not going to come to know him very well. Because no, hardly any, I've never, I've never known a person who in the midst of blessing is able to see God very clearly. They're just not. Not near as well as a person broken. Because that person has a lot of fog that was otherwise caused by their misconceptions about the blessings, if you will. Because not that God doesn't bless. And not that you can't see him personally in those circumstances. But there's a part of which is going to lie to you. The lie that won't work over here. The, the, the fog that won't work over here will work over there. You're going to see him real clearly over there. Broken and contrite spirit, God says, you will not despise. So he calls us to mourn. He calls us, secondly, when we're going through a disaster, to gather. Look at verse 14. Gather, consecrate a fast, he says. Proclaim a solemn assembly. That's a, assembly is a coming together, you know. Everybody come, right? Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of God, the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas, the day for the day of the Lord is near. He goes on. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15, take a look, saying the same thing. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly coming together. Right? Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. And the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of us. Don't, I mean, I know you've got a special day going on, but there's no time for that. Groom and bride, delay the wedding. We got to get together. Why? Because there's a disaster. So number one, we mourn. Number two, we gather. Get everybody together. Everybody go hide and go cloister yourself off and deal with your own problems. That's not a message of the Bible. When you're going through a disaster... The message of the Bible when you go through a disaster is let's get together. Let's find each other. Let's rely upon each other. Second Corinthians chapter 1, 
Verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. It's a personal one-on-one thing, right? Notice. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction, in any affliction. So we have to get together for that to happen, you see. So I've been comforted in my affliction. Why? So that I can get together with you. We've got to get together. With, with the comfort with which ourselves we were comforted by God, it says. So, so that, that takes the togetherness. We've got to gather together, and there's a, there's, a, there's a secret of that, and there's such an importance of that. Not much at all is recommended to be done, listen, solo in the Bible. You have all these, uh, uh, if you will, um, one another's in the Scriptures consider. Be at peace with each other, right? Wash one another's feet. You've got to get together to do that. I can't do that by text. I can send you a picture of your foot underwater, you know. There you go. By God's grace, you got your foot washed. Love one another, it says in multiple places in, in John chapter 13, 15, uh, multiple places. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another, it says there in, in Romans. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Got to be together to do that. I guess we can do that by email, but nonetheless. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Can't do that by text. Have equal concern for each other. Carry each other's burdens. It's all togetherness, you see. And I say that because we live in a culture that we don't even know our neighbors. We don't know each other. I'm anonymous. You're anonymous. I sit behind my little computer screen, and I tell you stuff about myself that is not true so that you can tell me stuff about yourself that's not true. And then we can live in our little lie in the world, and I can be as ugly as I want to be, but nonetheless put a picture of myself that looks like, a, you know, of course, it'll be from high school for sure every single time. <laughs> we're all anonymous, and we're separated from each other, and there's really a cool part of that because then I don't have to mess with you, and you don't have to mess with me. But when disaster comes, guess what? You're in trouble if you're by yourself. You're in trouble. That's why we need to be a part of a local congregation. That's why we need to be committed to a local congregation. People need to know us. Need to know us. Well, I don't want them to know my business. Yeah, I understand that. But when your business goes south, you're going to want somebody to know it. You're going to want it. So gather is so important. It's so, it's so vital. It's such an incredible instruction. So number one, we mourn. Number two, we gather. Number three, we pray. Verse 14, take a look. Consecrate yourselves. Holy fast, the last part of the verse. Gather together the house of the Lord, right? Cry out to the Lord. There you go. Prayer, chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 19, skip down. To thee, here's the cry, O Lord, I cry, for fires devour the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up the trees of the field. And he goes on, you cannot, listen, deal with disaster in your life without going to God in prayer. You just simply can't. And woe be to the person who in the midst of disaster finds themselves angry and separated from God. I feel very sorry for that person. Having been one of those people at times, it is never good. And by the way, you're, you're angry at God, so you're getting back at him. So anybody, parents here, you ever had a kid angry at you, your child? What does it do to you as a, as a parent? You feel sorry for them. But you know what? You keep on being their parent because that's what parents do. So he's mad at me. Oh, well, move on. Well, that's the way God is. God loves you, and it's not healthy for you or, or good for you in any way that you're angry with him and separated with him, especially in the, in the midst of disaster. 
Oh my goodness, talk about a bad time to be. Be angry at God when things are going well, not that we ever are. Just when things go bad. And now you're adding insult to injury, so it's already bad enough, right? Now you're going to separate yourself from the only source you've got. And by the way, usually that same person separates themselves from the gathering of the body. They do, everything, they do every last thing that's wrong in every direction that, that Joel says we should be doing, which is right. So, so we turn to him, right, for our questions. We, we turn to him for our grief. We gather together, right? But when we gather together, even if we're all here, what have we got? We got a whole bunch of sheep together. Sheep can only do so much for each other. Why? Because here's the, here's the standard answer of the sheep. I don't know. So why did it happen to Michelle? Why did it happen to Valerie? Why did it happen to Johnny? What do we say? Bottom line, we don't know. She don't know. I don't know. And you don't know. Because we really don't know. Because that's the nature of sheep. They just don't know stuff. So when the sheep come together, which they need to do, because it tells us we need to do it, they need to come together. And then they turn over Everything to the shepherd, you see, because he does happen to know very well. And not that he always gives the answers per se, but he is the answer, right? He possesses the answer. So sometimes even when he doesn't answer the question of why, you still are getting an answer because you're in the presence of the one who holds the answer. And that needs sometimes to be good enough. It does. So we need to pray. We need to turn everything back over to him. Second Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 says we were under great pressure. Here's the, one of the benefits of disaster, as a matter of fact. Far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. I'd say that's a disaster. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but it happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Purpose in the disaster, isn't it? So it's, there's a problem when you rely on yourself. There's a problem. That's what happens over here, by the, line, by the way, in the line that's blessings only. You start relying on yourself. Look at what I did. Aren't I Awesome. Whereas the line of grief and the line of broken and contriteness, no, you're not like that. We learn to rely on God who, even, even if we were dead, raises the dead. And so we come together to mourn, we gather together, we pray, we deal dealing with disaster, and finally we, re, we return to God, which is a part of all that. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, in the midst of your disaster... Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. There it is again. Rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting from evil. Who knows whether he will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God, it says. Disastrous circumstances are an incredible opportunity for us to return to the Lord. So you've got a disaster going on in your life? I can tell you one thing God wants to do with that disaster, that you come closer to him. Amen. So take it as a, get it, don't get it in front of you and keep you from God. Get it behind you and let it push you to God. Return to him. Disaster has a way, like I said, of clearing the air. There was a fog and a mist, and I wasn't sure what was going on and where I really stood, but now disaster has come, and I see clearly. Disaster changes stuff. There can only, as we say, more often than not, we hear anymore, we say there's nothing but a new normal now. Disaster does that. Because it's not, whatever it was is not going to be that anymore because de- disaster has altered it to a greater or lesser extent. My, it's a new normal now for me. It's a new normal now for us. It's a new normal and that's just the way it is. 
Whatever it was, that is a was, and it will always be a was. Disaster has altered it. It's come and it's changed. But here's one thing that disaster does not change. It does not change God. He's still the same. Again, notice at the end of verse 13. He's still the same. A God who is gracious, right? Compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting in evil. This is the God. This is the way he wants to be. The whole world may change. I mean, uh, uh, Joel had a grasshopper whore that came in and ate every last thing, stripped the bark off of every tree. It is a new normal, right? But everything has been altered but God. Everything has been altered except him. And he is the one and who knows that it may be even such that even though there was a disaster, he can leave a blessing behind. How could that be possible? Listen, sometimes disasters in the long run turn out to be the best thing that ever happened to us. They can be. Do you not believe the Bible that says, Romans eight twenty eight that God works all things together for good? It doesn't say he works all the good things together for good. It says he works all things together. It doesn't say all things are good. It doesn't matter what, he, it doesn't matter what God receives, he can work all things together for good good or bad, what they start off with, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God can take what is initially evil and wicked and turn it into something that is actually a blessing in the long run. Sometimes it is a long run, but it still comes to an end. And God can leave a blessing behind in the midst of the process. It reminds me of, of how God can use and how the things that God wants to do in our own personal disaster. I saw a cartoon. By the way, we tried this in the last service and it made a terrible noise. And we're going to, one, two, three, go. There it is. Some kind of interference when I put it up there last time. So you got the pastor in the middle. I love this cartoon because I'm a pastor. And either side of these two guys with chainsaws and a little kid in the front pulling limbs and stuff like that. Apparently there's a disaster, right, of some kind. And so notice the comments. When, when, when people ask where our congregation was trained to endure disasters, we always point to your 40-week sermon series on the first chapter of the book of Leviticus. That would be definitely a disaster. Holy cow. But you'll be trained. That's what happens in disasters. I went through a disaster, so guess what? I'm good at handling disaster. I'm good at helping with you with your disaster. Look at it that way. It can be a blessing. You can be a blessing. Because of the horrible stuff you went through, here you're still alive. Here you are. You made it. And definitely, it's a do normal, right? But there, it, has, it, has, it has equalized. It has normalized. Here you are, and now you see a person that's headed toward disaster or in the midst of a disaster. Guess what? You're skilled in that. You're skilled in that. It reminds me of a story out of South Alabama. It happened here in our, our, uh, in our country, a very, speaking of locusts, a bug, a bug invasion of a different kind. And that bug invasion took place in, in Alabama and parts of Georgia and Mississippi, Louisiana, and lots of parts of East Texas. Up until the turn of this past century, they only farmed one thing. You know what that was? Cotton. Because cotton made money. Cotton sold in Europe. Cotton sold in New York. Cotton sold in San Francisco. Cotton, cotton, cotton. Everybody wanted stuff made in cotton. Half your bodies are covered in cotton today. The stuff is made out of cotton all around us. This is made out of cotton. My pants, I don't think, are made out of cotton. My socks are made out of cotton. Cotton, cotton, cotton. Cotton are important, right? Everybody farmed cotton. Cheap to plant, easy to grow if you got rain, fairly cheap to pick, cash crop. So they planted, 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 and then something moved in. A tiny elephant moved in to the cotton field. 
otherwise known as a boll weevil. It's a little bug with a long nose called a proboscis. And what they use is, and we have cotton farmers down here who can correct me on this, they would go down and they eat, they eat the germ part of the bowl where the cotton actually forms. So what you wind up with is you get this wooden bowl with no cotton in it. And they invaded the south, in particular south Alabama, and they devastated it. I mean, there was, everybody put their money into cotton. Nobody bought farm insurance, Jim. There you go. He's a farm insurance guy over here. Nobody bought farm insurance because cotton, cotton, cotton. Every cotton always made money. Never a problem selling cotton. And then the boll weevil moved in and wiped them out. So the next year, what are they going to do? Well, they planted cotton because they've always planted cotton. Cotton always makes a difference. And the weevils died in the winter, hopefully. They won't be back this year. They weren't back the previous years or the hundred years before that. We're going to be fine. So they mortgaged the farm and the house and bet everything on the cotton. And guess what happened? They were worse that year than they had been the year before, and they lost everything. So the cards are on the table, and you think you've got a winning hand, and you lay everything on the table, and guess what? Somebody else walks off, walks off with it. That's what happened to them. They lost everything. And the few that survived decided the next year that they were not going to plant cotton. Now, think about that. I say that to say this. You go to South Alabama, in particular a town that's there, and you will find a statue of a bow weevil. And in fact, it's put there by the people who were grateful to the boll weevil. Now, who would be grateful to be getting wiped out? Because this is what happened to the people in South Alabama and other places. They begin to adopt the practices of planting, not just planting, but of, of plants from our, their neighbors from the northern South Carolina and Georgia and portions over there. They were finding out they were making the same money, maybe better, on the thing called a peanut. And they began to plant it in South Alabama. They were not going to plant cotton again. And because of their planting of, the, of peanuts and other stuff, because the boll weevil made them diversify, because if you fall out of bed with only one crop and that's all you've got is one crop, guess what? Over. So they begin to diversify their crops. They begin to spread out all kinds of stuff so that if the peanuts failed, then the tomatoes wouldn't. And if the tomatoes didn't, then maybe the cotton would make and then all this kind of stuff. And they had never done that before. And so as a result, those that made it through... And learn from the boll weevil, like I said, they erected a statue to that little guy because he taught them a lesson. And they went from prosperity to prosperity because of disaster. Disaster can do that if you'll let it, if you'll give it time, if you'll learn from it. And if you'll not let it get between you and your God, you're not getting between you and your congregation, you and between uh, what, it, what it needs to do in your life. Yeah, you mean it's humbling. Who wants to be humbled? Well, nobody does, but everybody needs to be. So take it when it comes and let it be what it is. And let it drive you to your knees and drive you to your God. And in the end, you're going to find out you've got a God who is able to leave. He is able to leave a blessing behind. I want to, I want to ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes so we consider the things that God has said to us today. God is able to turn your disaster into a blessing. It won't be the same thing. I said we're in a new normal now. Let it be what it is. And it may not be, you know, it may not be another cash crop. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we leave it to God to bless us however he wants to. It may be an utterly changed life. It may be a total different perspective on who we are or who others are. It may be an all-new ministry or an all-new different direction. But he is able to leave a blessing. We've got to mourn. We've got to. We've got to come together. We've got to pray. We've got to return to him.
And then we've got to trust him to do what only he can do. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the good shepherd to the sheep. God, I pray as your sheep suffer that we wouldn't allow our suffering to separate us from you. We wouldn't allow it to allow us to separate us from each other. Instead, God, we would draw to you and draw to each other in the midst of all of it. That we would trust you, God. That we wouldn't be so concerned about the fact that we don't understand it. We would only be concerned about the fact that we're near the one who does. That we're holding to him. Whether he answers us or not, tells us or not, doesn't matter. He's the one that holds all these things. So God, we trust you. Uh, we thank you for being that God. We thank you for being so great. Uh, we thank you, God, for carrying us, and we need to be carried. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.